Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the state historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. Every day, people around the world make use of a small fastening tool and its companion screw that fasten things together better than just about anything, and it was invented in Hartford. If you ever shopped Ikea, you know what it is. From the memoir of historian Ellsworth S. Grant, it's the story of the Allen Wrench on Grading the Nutmeg. One of Connecticut's best historians of the last century, and perhaps any century, was Ellsworth S. Grant. He was a gentleman historian in the old patrician style, befitting someone whose family roots went all the way back to the founding of the colony. His efforts as businessman, mayor, and council member of West Hartford, president of the Connecticut Historical Society, founder of Riverfront Recapture in Hartford, trustee of the Connecticut River Museum in Essex, and on behalf of many other civic organizations and clubs was legendary, and it was time-consuming. Yet with the help of his first wife, Marion Houghton, he still found time to author numerous books on Hartford history, Connecticut industrial history, maritime history, even a book on Connecticut disasters. And a book by Ellsworth Grant is as readable as it is historically informative. Connecticut history was lucky indeed to have him in the fold. Today I'm going to read a section of Ellsworth Grant's 1995 memoir in which he talks about a company that played a major role in both his and his father's lives. I'm going to save the story about Ellsworth Grant's life for another episode and talk about that Hartford company and its world-changing invention, the six-sided socket screw, which could only be tightened with a special device we now call the Allen Wrench. I'm taking the storyteller's liberty here of beginning with Grant's third chapter, which tells the history of the invention of the mechanical screw And then I'll double back to the story of its perfection in Hartford at the company that gave name to Grant's memoir, The Allen. From Archimedes to Allen. How easy it is to take for granted the commonplace things without which our lives would be immeasurably less safe, healthy, enjoyable, or endurable. One of these things is the ordinary threaded fastening, yes, the screw. A light bulb needs replacing. A twist of the wrist and the task is done in seconds, thanks to a screw thread on one end of the bulb and another in its socket. A set of new porch furniture that requires assembling with nuts and bolts presents no problem to the do-it-yourselfer. And the threaded set screw on the carburetor of your power lawnmower makes adjustment easy. Around the home, everywhere in fact, the inconspicuous, inexpensive threaded fastening to some extent controls our day-to-day living. Likewise, the machines and tools of our industries have depended on strong fastenings with accurate threads to turn out the endless flow of goods essential to an industrialized society. It was not always so and it may be enlightening to trace the history of threaded fastenings without boring the reader with a lot of technical jargon. 
Only in the 19th century, as the Industrial Revolution took hold, did the screw thread as a holding device come into its own. Actually, the first use of the screw was as a force for moving. Archimedes, the Greek mathematician and inventor, applied the principle of the helix or spiral for lifting water from one level to another. This was about 225 BC. To him also is attributed the idea of using a large screw as a worm for launching a ship of King Hiero of Syracuse. Observation of the helix in nature, especially in certain varieties of snail shell, probably suggested the screw principle to the ancient Greeks. Archimedes' water screw was called cochlea, the Greek word for snail, because of its resemblance to the shape of the snail shell. Later, the copycat Romans applied the same word to their wine and oil presses, which utilized an upright screw turned by a lever to exert a crushing force on the fruit. A clothes press of similar construction was depicted in a mural unearthed at Pompeii, the Roman town destroyed by the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in 79 AD. Nevertheless, the screw was the latecomer among the six basic mechanical forces. The other five, lever, inclined plane, wedge, wheel, and pulley, had all been known and used by the earliest civilizations. There is no mention of the screw in the Bible, nor is there evidence of its existence in the remains of Babylonian, Egyptian, Chinese, Cretan, or Trojan cultures. Even after Archimedes' time, records of its use are so sparse as to lead to the conclusion that it was considered unimportant. While the ancients undoubtedly realized the superiority of the screw thread over the pin, nail, or rivet for holding parts together, they lacked the knowledge of how to make the thread, the crucial ridge of uniform thickness in the form of a helix on a cylinder or cone. Like so many ideas of Greek origin, the Romans were the first to put the screw principle to practical use. About the beginning of the Christian era, they were producing crude threads for fastening purposes. One method, most frequently used by jewelers, involved soldering or brazing. Around a metal rod, the craftsman wound two pieces of wire at an angle to give the desired pitch. After the ends of one wire were secured, the second was unwound. Finally, the remaining wire was attached to the rod, thus forming a thread. This wraparound process made screws for bracelets, necklaces, armbands, and other decorative objects of precious metal. Others strove to perfect the technique. The ruins at Pompeii have yielded surgical implements with screw threads, one of the earliest applications of the thread for transmitting force by a controlled adjustment. Female threads appear to have been cut with a tap-like tool. During the so-called Dark Ages that followed the collapse of the Roman Empire, many of the discoveries and inventions of earlier times were abandoned or forgotten. For this reason, there was almost a complete lack of reference to the use of the screw for nearly a thousand years, not until the Renaissance, the rebirth of learning during the 14th and 15th centuries, does the screw again make its appearance. Translation of the manuscripts of Archimedes and other Greek and Roman men of learning who had first written about the screw inspired geniuses like Leonardo da Vinci 
to incorporate the thread in many of his inventions. His notebook shows sketches of a screw cutting machine. In Germany, as well as Italy, the screw was likewise gaining favor. A German watch in 1513 contains one of the first known slotted screws. About the same time, the description by a German mining engineer of a gear wheel in which each tooth is screwed into an iron rim indicated the important role the screw was to play in the development of interchangeable parts. Another application in the 1500s involves the much romanticized armored knight. After donning his suit of mail, this fearless warrior allowed himself to be locked in with a screw joining the breastplate with the iron coattails. He carried a specially shaped screwdriver on a hook under his arm. Woe betide the unfortunate knight who had to make a hurried exit from his steel prison with no friend handy to ply the screwdriver. During this period, the use of threaded fastenings, particularly for wood, became generally accepted. Wider application was limited only by slowness in developing production tools and methods and by the lack of standardization. As early as 1475, someone had built a lathe for thread making, the earliest application of the lead screw principle. In 1589, a French inventor, Jacques Besson, devised a foot treadle powered lathe using the lead screw to govern the advance of the cutting tool and pulleys of different diameters to vary the pitch. Right or left hand threads could be made by crossing or uncrossing the pulley cords. Like nail making, the production of screws continued mostly as a cottage industry. Rod was cut to length with hammer and chisel, heads were individually forged, slots cut with a handsaw, and threads filed. The file and fit method ruled out any significant degree of uniformity. England led the way in mechanizing screw production. The Wyatt brothers obtained patents in 1760 for a lathe that machined the head, cut the slot, and formed the thread of wood screws. By 1800, the Wyatt lathe could turn out eight or more screws a minute. The coming of uniform interchangeable parts, pioneered by Eli Whitney in Simeon North in Connecticut, hinged largely on the availability of accurate fastenings for holding parts together. The screw thread also served as both a regulating and measuring device. To Henry Maudsley, a British inventor, is due the credit for bringing about a semblance of uniformity in screw threads. By 1789, he had succeeded in making a master screw seven feet long and only one sixteenth of an inch off its true length. Later, in 1841, Sir Joseph Whitworth campaigned for a system of thread standards that was adopted by English manufacturers, but more than another century passed before engineers in Great Britain, Canada, and the United States agreed upon the present system of standards. In America, the first patent for screw making was granted to David Wilkinson of Pawtucket, Rhode Island in 1798, and the first screw factory was started in Rhode Island in 1810. The earliest bolt factory was established in Southington, Connecticut around 1839. A bull on a treadmill provided the power for the special machinery that rounded the bolts from square stock, trimmed the heads and cut the threads at the rate of 500 bolts per day. 
Thomas Harvey invented the hopper feed, opening the way for the automatic screw machine. This was the brainchild of Christopher Spencer of Manchester, the state's most prolific inventor in the 19th century. A master mechanic whose repeating rifle helped turn the tide for the Union Army in the Civil War, Spencer patented his automatic single spindle screw machine in 1873 and began manufacturing in Hartford. Two years later, Russell and Irwin in New Britain introduced roll threading. During the course of these developments, little attention had been given to the shape of a screw or to methods for driving and seating it. The two basic types of screw heads used from the beginning were the slotted head, driven by a screwdriver, and the square or hexagonal solid head, driven by an open wrench. Each had its limitations, insufficient wrenching force, slippage of the driver, easily damaged slots and corners, and injuries to the worker's hands. With the advent of the hex socket fastener in 1910, the Allen screw, machine screws were able to reach a state of perfection in terms of strength, durability, and safety. The Allen-type screw was the favorite holding device in metalworking industries for not only machines and tools, but also for the assembly of consumer products. Rich Man, Poor Man When he founded the Allen Manufacturing Company at the age of 83, the full-bearded, keen-eyed Ira Dimmock closely resembled most of the representative men of his time whose engravings filled the vanity biographies published long ago. He was a bona fide Connecticut Yankee born in Tolland. His ancestor, Elder Thomas Dimmock, was among the first to settle in Dorchester in 1635. When Ira was eight, his family moved to South Willington, where his father, Otis Dimmock, engaged in spooling cotton. At 15, he decided he'd had enough schooling and walked the 12 miles to Rockville, where he found a job in the Frank Textile Mill, $6 a month plus room and board. Three years later, found him making knives in Bristol, and eventually he rode up the valley to Northampton to form a partnership in a machine shop with his brother, Lucius. One of their young employees was George A. Fairchild, later to become president of the Hartford Machine Screw Company and Grant's father's boss. Like his three brothers, all of whom were inventors, Ira was blessed with natural mechanical ability. But as his career unfolded, he demonstrated qualities of leadership that would make him a very rich man. In 1853, now in his 26th year, Ira visited the World's Fair in New York, and on the return trip by steamboat to Norwich, he made the acquaintance of a man named Dwight Campbell. The two men sat up most of the night, discussing a plan to buy out a struggling small silk mill in Mansfield, Connecticut, owned by Albert and George Conant. It had been started in 1829 by Captain Joseph Conant, who also brought silk manufacturing to Northampton. The very next day, they entered into negotiations and soon made the deal. Faint heart never made a successful entrepreneur, and when the mill lost $5,000 the first year under their management, Campbell sold out to his partner. 
Ira, on the other hand, had faith in the future of silk, and his perseverance was rewarded by a profit of $8,000 at the end of the second year. The making of silk in the Northeast began the same year as the adoption of the U.S. Constitution, but the attempt to grow silk on imported mulberry trees dates back to 1760, when Dr. Nathan Aspinwall, a silk culture promoter, set out an orchard in Mansfield. This was successful enough to encourage a group of Mansfield farmers to petition the legislature for a charter for the Connecticut Society of Silk Manufacturers, which holds the distinction of being the very first manufacturing corporation in the United States. When Ira Demick was a small boy, most of the families in Mansfield and the surrounding villages were engaged in raising cocoons or reeling and winding silk. Wyndham and Tolland counties turned out 75,000 yards annually on 50 looms. Speculation, the Panic of 1837, and the inability of Morris Multicaulis to survive the severe winters of New England caused the collapse of the silk growing fever by 1840, but the never-daunted Yankees with great success carried on the production of silk by importing the material from China and elsewhere. The most spectacular achievement was that of the eight Cheney brothers, the first to master the intricate art of silk weaving. Their ingenuity created the world's largest silk complex in Manchester, which at its peak employed 5,000 hands and covered 36 acres. Ira Dimmock's mill in Mansfield was small potatoes compared to the Cheney enterprise, but by the age of 50, he was regarded as an authority on silk manufacturing, and he became president of the Nonatuck Silk Company, with plants in both Northampton and Florence, Massachusetts. This company, started before the silk growing bubble burst, had been a weak sister in the industry until its reorganization and change of name to Nonatuck in 1866. Then, as the first to market an acceptable silk twist spool for the domestic sewing machine, it entered on a period of great profitability. Ira served as its guiding head for 40 years until his death in 1917. One of his contributions was a machine that sawed and painted wooden spools automatically. Nonatuck was the king of the silk companies that dominated Northampton's industrial life. It had plants in Florence, Leeds, and Haydenville that employed nearly 900. A community hall held concerts, dances, and lectures for employees, and the dividends paid to stockholders ranged from 10 to 20% annually. Indeed, Ira Dimmock had done well by Northampton, but in 1877 he moved to Hartford, five years after his marriage to Lena Louise DeMont. There she bore him six children. His first home was at 100 Church Street. Lena must have complained about the burden of cleaning the house on top of her child-rearing obligations because Ira devised a vacuum cleaner that operated by a compressor he installed in his barn. Four of his offspring survived, two sons, Stanley and Edwin, and two daughters, Edith and Florence. By 1890, Church Street was no longer an attractive residential area, 
and the Demicks moved to West Hartford, as many affluent Hartfordians were doing. Ira wanted a big, imposing house in keeping with his industrial prominence, with plenty of land and a large stable for his horses and carriages. He found the ideal place on Vanderbilt Hill, now known as West Hill. Commodore Cornelius Vanderbilt, the steamboat and railroad tycoon, had close connections with Hartford. One of his interests was the line of steamers that plied the Connecticut River to New York, a highly competitive and cutthroat business that frequently demanded his presence in the city. In 1859, he acquired the 75-acre Hamilton farm in the hope that it would straighten out his wayward son Cornelius Jr., a Broadway playboy and notorious gambler. The young man reluctantly moved here to manage the farm and married a Hartford girl. The couple gave lavish parties, their guests often brought on special trains from New York. When, around 1871, Mrs. Vanderbilt died, her husband sold the farm back to the Hamiltons and returned to New York. The old Commodore passed away in 1877, leaving a fortune of $100 million to his son. His Hartford friends persuaded him to repurchase 11 acres of the farm, and he set about to erect a Victorian mansion fit for a Vanderbilt heir. Chocolate-colored with a veranda on three sides and a great cupola, the house contained 30 rooms, no two alike. It took a ton of coal to heat it. The decorations included beautiful woodwork in the spacious halls, hand-carved stair rails and newel posts, a gold-leaf ceiling and Louis-Philippe chandelier in one parlor, pink brocade walls in another, and a dining room in black walnut. Along Farmington Avenue, he built an imposing wall of Portland brownstone. But alas, Cornelius Jr. never occupied it. The day before he was due to move in, he blew out his brains in a New York hotel. The mansion remained vacant until a buyer with deep enough pockets came along, Ira Dimmock. Five of the Dimmock children spent some of their youth on Vanderbilt Hill. One brother died of fever in Cuba during the Spanish-American War. Edwin had a brilliant mind but little ambition. It's said that upon graduation from Harvard Law School, he joined a law firm but quit after one day and moved to New London, where he was mainly known as a champion chess player. Florence married a staffer on the New York Herald Tribune. They lived most of their life in London. Edith became a New Yorker after her marriage to the painter William Glackens, 1870 to 1938, 
a member of the Ashcan School of Impressionists who interpreted everyday American life with gusto and flair for the picturesque. Quiet and a bit aloof, Glackens loved to paint people in parks, at the races, or on the seashore, wherever they went to have fun. I'm especially fond of his winter view of West Hartford from Vanderbilt Hill, says Grant, done years before the town had become a suburb. The painting is now in the Wadsworth Athenaeum. Grant's mother's friendship with Edith Glackens had rather a bizarre ending. It was her sad duty upon Edith's death to scatter her ashes in the Connecticut River. Early one morning, Grant remembered accompanying her as she drove to the middle of the Bulkley Bridge, nervously looked around to see if they were alone, and quickly cast the little box into the turgid current. Stanley attended Trinity College briefly and stayed in Hartford. His passion was boat building. During his lifetime, he had a number of sailboats built for him in Maine, all of them maintained by the inimitable Deer Islander Bill Eaton. Next to boats, he loved the ladies, and some of his romances terminated in expensive settlements out of court that were negotiated by Grant's father. By this time, Ira had set up his business headquarters, the Nonatuck Silk Company, in the factory at 111 to 135 Sheldon Street. For some years, the building had been occupied by the National Machine Company, a maker of printing presses, one of the interests of Charles E. Billings and Henry and Wright, a small manufacturer of drilling presses, in which Dimmock took a financial interest. The old man must have enjoyed walking through the oil-soaked floor of the machine shop and watching the hands make parts and assemble the machines. One of the skilled machinists he came to know was William G. Allen. Little is known of Allen's background. He was probably Irish in descent and typical of the hundreds if not thousands of Connecticut-bred men who could do anything with their hands. But in addition, he had that creative bent that produced so many inventors in the state and ranked Connecticut first in the nation in the number of patents granted per capita until 1930. Taking a liking to a fellow inventor, Allen told him he had an idea for improving workers' safety and at the same time increasing the workers' productivity. He called it the hollow screw. In those days, machines were operated by a veritable forest of overhead shafts, wheels, and belts. These were held together by projecting head screws. Revolving at high speeds, they all too often maimed or killed workers. There were as many as 1,500 casualties every year. A careless finger, a dangling sleeve, a lock of hair near a moving screw head was a sure invitation to serious trouble. Moreover, the slots in these screws became worn after hard use and difficult to adjust. Insurance companies were demanding their elimination. Allen knew that trying to make a safety set screw, as some were doing, by broaching, using a hollow punch to stamp out a hole, was worthless. Broaching would often split the hole in the screw, and the broken metal had to be drilled or chipped out. Instead, 
he conceived of a process for making so-called cap and set screws with hexagon sockets that would be flush with or countersunk below surrounding surfaces. The socket would be formed by compressing the steel blank around a hexagon punch and drawing it through a die to the finished size. Cold drawing, he claimed, would increase the strength of the fastener by 30%. The hex socket had two other important advantages. It required using a six-sided key or wrench, which gave greater holding power, and this in turn opened a market for the wrench as well as the screw. Ira was fascinated. He was not too old to see the possibilities, nor to risk some of his capital in one more new venture. He encouraged Allen to apply for a patent, which was granted on June 7, 1910. Allen was a poor man, living on his wages week by week. He had no capital to start a business. Ira Dimmick did. He incorporated the Allen Manufacturing Company, gave the inventor a half interest, and made him president. Production commenced in a tiny shop in the rear of 133 Sheldon. Progress was painfully slow. One handicap was the necessity of devising new machinery for cold drawing. Ira contributed his experience in developing new screw machines, the patterns and castings for which were made across the Little River by Taylor and Fenn. Alloy steel was unknown, and heat treating for hardness was in its infancy. Another stumbling block was sales resistance. Factory managers were wary of hollow screws because of the defects inherent in broached types. What was better about this newfangled fastener that required a special wrench? But test demonstrations plus advertising in trade journals gradually convinced the engineering world that the Allen hollow screw was definitely something new under the sun. To drive their sales pitch home, Allen representatives sometimes resorted to the persuasive power of $5 bills. A favorite stunt was to seek out a foreman and ask for the huskiest man on the floor. The big fellow would then be offered a fiver if he could, by manual force on the hex wrench, break an Allen screw set in a block of steel clamped to a vise. There is no record of any payment ever made. From a sales volume the first year of less than $3,000 and some 20 sizes of almost handmade set screws, the firm forged ahead. In six years, annual sales had reached and passed 150,000. By World War I, Allen occupied the second floor of the factory. The office was upstairs next door in Libyan Blinn, connected by a bridge to the factory. Before long, the safety feature was eclipsed by the advantage of superior strength of both the set screw and its companion, the cap screw, first marketed in 1915 in any application involving moving parts or holding together metals. Ultimately, Allen-type fasteners revolutionized the assembly of dies, jigs, fixtures, and machines of all types. By the end of World War I, the name Allen had become synonymous with socket screws, as generic as Kodak for cameras or Singer for sewing machines. But what of Bill Allen himself? He was an inventor, not a business manager, 
Unfortunately, too, he had a serious drinking problem, and within three years of the company's founding, Ira Dimmick bought out his half-interest for $10,000 and bid him goodbye as president. Nothing more was ever heard about him. Allen suffered the same fate as such illustrious Connecticut inventors as David Bushnell, John Fitch, and Charles Goodyear, none of whom benefited materially from their original creations. Despite the fact of his complete oblivion as an individual, his name lives on in his invention, while that of his benefactor, for all his wealth and success, is buried deep in the dusty accounts of New England entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Pete Marston. This episode was produced and narrated by Walt Woodward. To hear more great Connecticut history podcasts, subscribe to Grading the Nutmeg on your favorite podcast app. And for more great Connecticut history stories, subscribe to Connecticut Explored at ctexplored.org. This is state historian Walt Woodward, hoping you'll join us next time for another episode of Grading the Nutmeg.